Well, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, I have seen many white people who sincerely oppose segregation and discrimination, but they never took a real stand against it because of fear of standing alone. Fear of standing alone. He said that in a message that he gave in 1954. He had just been installed as the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. One year later, they would have the Montgomery bus boycott. And the title of that message was The Transformed Nonconformist. Transformation. This caught my eye because transformation is at the center of our shared experience here at UPC. You know, our mission statement is that we're a family of communities joining Jesus to transform our lives and the lives of neighbors at the University of Washington in our neighborhoods and all around the world. Transformation. What does it take to become a transformed nonconformist? Dr. King was essentially raising that question, what gives us the power to stand up for what's right? And his answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transformation that it promises and the promise that when we stand up for what's right, we will never stand alone. Now, this is a lesson that Daniel learned in exile. Last week, uh, we started learning about Daniel, and we saw that he had this gift of interpreting dreams. He interpreted one for the king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar, and the king was really pleased, and he promoted uh, Daniel and uh, three of his prayer partners into political... In fact, Daniel was brought into the cabinet of the king, and these promotions provoked the jealousy and, frankly, let's be honest, the anti-Semitism of a number of the other royal officials who began to plot uh, against these uh, Jews and to look for an opportunity to sabotage their careers and harm them physically. They find the opportunity they need when Nebuchadnezzar one day erects this 90-foot-tall um, idol, a statue made of gold, and he commands that everybody, when the music plays, had to bow down before this idol and worship. And, of course, the whole world does bow down and worship except for three. Uh, three men stand up uh, at their own expense. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rack, Shack, and Benny, to some of you. And no one has ever had the courage, apparently, to stand up before Nebuchadnezzar uh, before. Nobody had ever had the courage before this king to stand alone. Got to believe that all the satraps and prefects and governors and counselors certainly had grievances against this king and had complaints, but they never had the courage to stand because standing before this guy might be the last time you ever stand in your life. And so today I want to look at um, what happened there. And let's start by reading some of the story. I'm going to read it for you, if you but I'd love for you to open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 3. Going to jump in sort of at the middle, verse 14, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter, verse 30. You find this on page 719 of the Pew Bible. Uh, listen as I read. And then when I'm done reading, I'll say, This is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, Thanks be to God. Listen carefully, we're hearing God's holy word, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. 
Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and an entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, True, O king, he replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. The, their tunics were not harmed. And not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Amen. Well, a little bit of drama this morning, huh? Whew. I feel singed just reading that story. But you see the transformation immediately, don't you? In, in Nebuchadnezzar, both personally and publicly, right? Personally, first thing he says is, blessed be the God. He's got... 
He's got a personal story now of transformation. This is new. And then publicly, what's the first thing he does after that, after he worships? Therefore, I make a decree. He changes the laws. Wow, we're seeing justice start to come through a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And the question is, what happened here? I mean, what really happened here? What happened in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar? What had happened in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that gave them the courage to stand up this way? What happened in the furnace? Well, when you ask this question, you're asking an apocalyptic question. And I want to build a little bit on what we discovered last week about apocalyptic literature. Just a sidebar, remember I said Daniel is one of two books in the Bible that are apocalyptic literature. The other one is Revelation. And this is a genre of literature that comes out of the 6th century experience of God's people in exile. And I told you last week that the first characteristic of apocalyptic literature is uncovering. That's actually what the word apocalypse means, uncovered. It's something hidden has come to light, something mysterious has been revealed. But I want to add to that a second characteristic today, and, and that is transformation. Because transformation is also always a, a property of apocalyptic literature. It always reveals or uncovers a decisive act of God. It's always about God's unique and exclusive agency in history, where what is suddenly, because of God's intervention, becomes what will be. The situation is transformed, and a whole new reality comes into existence because of God's action. And so we see in Isaiah 43, a little bit later than the passage I read earlier in the service, verse 19, the Lord promises this for Israel. I am about to do a new thing, he says. Okay, that's, that's an apocalyptic action, a new reality. So if you put these two elements together, you see an apocalypse uncovers the transformational power of God. God does what only God can do. And now let me read from... Uh, Fleming Rutledge, the book that I recommend that you read called The Crucifixion, she writes this about apocalyptic literature. She says, as the Old Testament comes to a close, apocalyptic modes of thought, breaking in, reflect the new way of seeing. The human situation, she writes, is so tragic that there is no answer from within history. There is no answer from within history. And yet God uncovers that he has an answer from outside of history that will transform history. And of course, this raises a question, who is this God? You see, God gives apocalyptic literature to Israel in its exile in order to raise this very question, who is this God? This is the question that, that Nebuchadnezzar is raising in verse 15, it's on his lips as he confronts us. Who is this God that will deliver you? You know, just think about the exile, reading this as an exile. Who is the God that will deliver you when I, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, come and defeat all your armies, I destroy your city, take everything that you care about and even you back to my capital Babylon and enslave you? Who will deliver you from me? He's saying, who will deliver you? When I heat the furnace of blazing fire seven times more, when I bind you by my strongest guards, and when I just leave you to fall inside this furnace, who will deliver you? 
Now, Nebuchadnezzar raises that question because this is really the question that God is raising in the 6th century BC for his people in exile. God himself is saying, who is this God? Who is your God? What kind of a God do you have? He's asking a theological question. Who is this God who will deliver you when you turn your back on me, when you break my law, when you disregard my covenant, when you harm one another and irreparably damage my good and beloved creation? Who is this God who loves you enough to confront you, to judge you, to tell you you're wrong, no matter how right you might feel and no matter how many have bowed down with you into self-deception? Who is this God who loves you enough to send you into exile so that maybe someday you'll turn in your desperation to me and find me? Who is this God that will allow you to be in a place that's so hard that you'll know that there is no deliverance from anybody except for me? Who is this God who loves you enough to embrace you exactly the way you are in all of your brokenness but loves you too much to keep you that way? Who is this God who will get into the furnace with you and walk beside you in the midst of the burning flames? Already, you see, the question is, is being raised in such a way that the cross of Jesus Christ is the only answer. Who is this God? Well, we're beginning to get an answer in this story as we peer through some kind of portal into this fire. And we hear Nebuchadnezzar uh, begin to articulate an answer. I see four men, he says in verse 25, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a God. Now, who is this fourth man? Well, he's an apocalyptic figure. Maybe that's all we can say with certainty, but look at the evidence that's in the text. He has the appearance of the text says, a son of the gods, or the son of God. This is cryptic, but so provocative for those of us who read through Christian lenses. Who is this? Well, in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar refers to him as an angel. And there is a figure that kind of pops up from time to time in the Old Testament that's referred to consistently as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Well, Never told explicitly, but when this figure appears, he speaks as though he were God. That's Moses in the burning bush. He receives worship, whereas other angels definitely do not receive worship. And when he's been seen, God has been seen. This is what other texts tell us. Most theologians believe that the angel of the Lord represents some kind of a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Son of God. In other words, this is Jesus Christ, our Savior, before he's born into our humanity, showing up. Wow, this is Jesus walking in the fire. This is Jesus seeing him as an apocalyptic figure. Somebody who comes to uncover the transformational power of God. Now, this is a different way of seeing Jesus for many of us, an apocalyptic Jesus. This is a Jesus who threatens the powers that be, who comes in great might and power. He comforts those who stand up for what's right. He comes to transform earth with the power of heaven. And what I want to ask you today is, what would happen if you see Jesus that way? What changes if you have an apocalyptic perspective 
of Jesus? Okay, let me put that question on the screen because I really want you to wrestle with it. What changes if you have an apocalyptic perspective of Jesus? Now, I want to offer a few suggestions from the passage. The first is, an apocalyptic perspective of Jesus will change the way you see the gospel. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the gospel is an act of divine deliverance. It's not something that they do. It's something that God does. They say, let him deliver us. In their moment of weakness, they have no, they have no way out, no way through, except God delivering them. This is what the gospel is. When we say the gospel, by the way, what we mean is that God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And what I want you to see today is that for the Apostle Paul and many of the writers of the New Testament, it was clearly an apocalyptic message. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Here the Apostle Paul is giving the theme statement, setting up the whole epistle of Romans. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it means good news, it is the power of God for salvation. It's God's power to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And then catch this, for in it the righteousness, now by the way, I've told you before, righteousness and justice in Greek and Hebrew, same word. The translators always have to decide which word to use. It could be either way. For in it the justice of God is revealed, and there it is, apocalypto. That's the Greek word from which we get our English word apocalypse. The justice of God is uncovered. The mystery is explained. It is the power, the transforming power of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, what, I, what I've shared with you, what I'm going to write about in this book is a, an apocalyptic gospel. Now, that's, that's interesting. It means it uncovers the transforming power of God. And, and, and if that's what the gospel is, it's clearly not something that you and I do at all. It's something that we receive. It's something that's done for us and done to us. And that, that, I, you may have heard that before, but I want to tell you, if you're like me, you have a hard time really believing that. If you're like me, there's something inside of you that's constantly nagging. When you think about, what does it take for me to be in right standing with God? Well, I've got to do more, do better, jump higher, run faster. You know, I've got to be nicer. I've got to be a good person. I've got to fulfill all these expectations that not only my parents have and that I have of myself, but that God has of me, right? And this is what many of us think Christianity is. Just kind of be a nice person and live a good life and vote in a helpful way and make sure you tweet and this and post that and, and, and be as good as you can. Because the gospel is really just be a good person, but now Jesus has kind of raised his voice and said, I really mean it, right? Well, that just throws us back on ourselves, and there's nothing powerful or transformational about that. There's no gospel there. I mean, that's what any religion worth its salt is going to tell you. You can hear that message. You don't have to come to church. You can hear it any TED Talk or seminar anywhere around. And it's all good stuff. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just not the gospel. It's about you. It's not about God. It's not about God's power breaking in. I'm getting a little cranky about this because as I get old, I hear a lot of preaching and I'm getting tired of hearing sermons about you know, the five steps to fixing your marriage or the three key habits with your, with your money or whatever. I mean, that's all helpful. I need all those steps. I'll take all you got. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's not going to save me. It's not going to transform me like the gospel will. All right, an apocalyptic view of Jesus is going to change the way you understand the gospel. In the gospel, you have a message that will unlock your soul. 
because, because it's the message of one who is confronting the powers of evil, releasing you from those powers and bringing transformation into your life. Gustav Allen, the great Swedish theologian, the last century, writes, the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. The victory of Christ creates a new situation, bringing their rule to an end and setting women and men free from their dominion. Brothers and sisters, if you ever hear someone sharing a message, whether it's me or anybody else, that doesn't sound something like that, you're not hearing the gospel. It's about what God does to release us and transform us. Secondly, an apocalyptic perspective of Jesus will change your view of yourself. This is important. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't have any idea who they truly were until they walked into the fire with Jesus, right? We found out they were spiritually fireproof. Yeah, like asbestos. You know, that's, that's who they were. They didn't know that. Colossians 3 uh, in the New Testament says this. Paul, your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden. Notice the apocalyptic overtones. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You don't even know who you are, Paul's saying. You can't see it yet. Same with John, 1 John 3, 2. When, when we will be, what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Again, this uncovering. You'll see yourself. Now, you're not your situation. You are not your circumstances. It's so important to get this. You're not your fears. You're not your desires. You're not your ethnicity, your sexuality, your bank account, your resume, your work. You're not your addiction, uh, your uh, diagnosis, your brokenness. Who you really are is covered. It's hidden. And you need an apocalypsis in order to get at it. Your circumstances don't get to tell you who you are. Who does? Jesus. Jesus is saying to you, if you really want to know who you are, you want to know your, your real you so you can do you, you need to look into my face. You need to see my love. You need to look at the cross, see my judgment, and feel my grace. That's where we discover who we are. Thirdly, an apocalyptic perspective of Jesus changes your view of the world. Now, what you need to understand is that at this time in human history, 6th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful person walking on the face of this planet. Biggest empire, most powerful armies. And yet, in, when he looked into that furnace, he saw power that was greater than him. And it took someone who was powerful to recognize it, but he saw a power that's greater than death. And this had implications for all of creation, for the whole face of the planet at this time. He saw in there the one who was the creator hinting at the power of the new creation. Why is this important? Because many of us think that what Jesus came to do is just to sort of help me out. We call this a privatized spirituality. And it's really a truncated form of the gospel, that the whole show is really just about me. And Jesus, if he exists, is just kind of a cosmic butler to help me get what I want when I'm in trouble, or a life coach to help me optimize my experiences. And, you know, does it work or not? Does it make me feel good or not? These are the questions we tend to ask. But I want to tell you, that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about the renewal of all of creation, not just our lives. If you have trouble believing that, ask yourself, how do you explain the, the mystery of the incarnation? How do you explain the confrontation that Jesus has with Satan throughout his life? There he is in the wilderness, 
fighting the Satan about the power of, the, of God's word, the, the law. There he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing. And that word agony comes from the Greek word agono, which means combat. Jesus is fighting with the devil. There he is on the cross, laid bare and flayed, dying a sinner's death. This is God dying a sinner's death. When we look at the cross of Jesus, we realize our situation is much worse than we realize, much worse than we realize. Right now, we live in an era of global warming, nuclear escalation, mass migration, nationalism, dehumanizing technology, terrorism. The fires of this furnace have been heated seven times seven. And for the last 300 years since the Enlightenment, we seem to think that we can fix it. We think that some level of technology or education or political reform or prosperity, we naively overestimate our capabilities because we forget the essence of human nature and the power of evil that's been unleashed in this world. An apocalyptic perspective changes this. The Apostle Paul understood, and there's a development in the history of theology, that sin is not just an action. It's not just a deed that you do or decide not to do. It's really a power that captures you. Sin is a power. And theologians now, as they translate Paul's writings, are increasingly wanting to capitalize the word sin, capital S. Actually, Paul in the book of Romans refers to the law, sin, and death, all of them personified as powers. He says they, they reign, they exercise dominion. They are all like Nebuchadnezzar standing before us in which we're helpless and without recourse. Romans chapter one says, look at how systemic the problem is that humanity faces. All human beings have bowed down before anything but the creator. And then Romans two says, you know, this is so systemic that there's actually no such thing as good people or bad people. And then Romans chapter three says, you know what? That's because all people are under the power of, of, of the law and sin and death. And, and Paul's saying, it's just much, much worse than you realize. But at the same time, the gospel tells us it's much, much, much better than we ever could have imagined because God himself has entered into our story. He has stepped into the furnace with us, into our sin and shame and death under the power of the law and sin to disrupt it. Jesus is the fourth man, the son of God, consumed in the holocaust of the cross as an act of apocalyptic warfare against the powers that oppress us. And then he rises in apocalyptic transformation that isn't just about his resurrection, but the resurrection of all creation. This is the figure in the furnace. This is the apocalyptic Jesus. It's a new way of seeing Jesus. And when we see him this way, we get a new way of seeing the gospel, a new way of seeing ourselves, and a new way of seeing the world. We've got a savior who uncovers the transformational power of God. That's, that's what I'm saying. And I, I thought this week, if you just give me a, a couple more minutes, I just wanna say this. I thought this week, if this were my last message I ever got to share at UPC, what would I wanna share? I don't know, I was thinking a little bit apocalyptically, I guess. I'm not, I'm not hinting anything, I hope. But I, but I thought, what would I say? And I, you know, this is exactly what I would say, is that you have a Savior who is eager to uncover the transformational power of God in your life and in this world. That's it. That's my message. 
that you and I need to do nothing more, nothing less than to stand on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and to walk with Jesus and to see what he will do. This is what he's calling us to. Do you know that church attendance in America is dropping rather dramatically right now across the country? And I want to tell you, it doesn't bother me because I've seen the Savior of the world walking among us. There was a study at Harvard University, Indiana University, just recently that, that said secularization is in, indeed eroding religion in America, but it's eroding what they call moderate religion. It is not eroding in what they call intense religion, religion that will stand up to the fires. That's what we need, brothers and sisters. Around the country now, leaders are scrambling to become more relevant, to bow down to the culture in new ways, to encourage their congregation to do more, try harder, more steps. You can do better, but it's all, I'm telling you, a race to the bottom. It's not what we need. What we need is what we can't produce. It's a savior. We need Jesus Christ. We need the gospel. We need renewal that only comes from the gospel. We need to fall to our knees before him and repent of our sins and then stand up on his good news, the gospel, and his transformational power. I think, thank you, thank you. I think this is what Dr. King meant when he said, when he spoke of transform, transformed nonconformists. He was talking about spiritual strength. He was talking about moral courage. And he knew, and his life demonstrated, that it comes from the gospel and from walking with Jesus Christ. I think that's what it's going to take for us in a new era to stand up for what's right. And today I want to close with the words of Dr. King that he preached on this passage in another sermon. He said this, somewhere I read that one with God is a majority. And God has a way of turning a minority into a majority. Walk with him this morning and believe in him and do what is right and he'll be with you even until the consummation of the ages. He promised never to leave me never to leave me alone. No, never alone. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, wow, that you would come, that you would come this far from the glories of heaven into the blazing, fiery furnace of our lives to grab a hold of us that we might walk in your resurrection life in the glory of your presence. We pray that we will do nothing but receive the good news of the gospel and walk with you, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We pray in Christ's name, amen.